Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, August 24th, 2012. I just, I just know I've packed too much into the first hour. I can feel it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of really crazy, bizarre things being said about God, and we encourage you to slow down, open up your Bible, check things in context. You know, it, if you take a look at what God has revealed in his word in context, the context is what gives us the ability to understand what he said. And uh, over and again, we see people that are just cherry picking a verse here, cherry picking a verse there, cherry picking a verse there, stringing it all together and presto blamo, they've got a brand new, never before heard in Christianity, special revelation, new teaching that everyone is flocking to hear because it's the new latest and greatest new thing that's never been heard and... Christianity is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and God's word is to be understood in context. The idea here is you don't want to take God's word and turn it into a pretzel or a wax nose or treat it like silly putty and or you know or Play-Doh and bend it into funny little animal shapes. That's not the idea. The idea here is is that you you you, you the the pastor of your congregation, the one who is charged with preaching the word. <clears throat> is to do so with the utmost care and the utmost care in making sure that he has rightly understood what God has revealed there, that he's teaching nothing that is novel or new. And uh, I, I, I think it was Walther, uh, CFW Walther, who is uh, one of the heroes of the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I mean, uh, he taught at the uh, seminary in, in St. Louis, and uh, he, he would admonish pastors that after writing their sermons, to go back through it and mercilessly delete anything that is not 
God's word or is or that comes from themselves or has its origin in their mind or in philosophy or whatever. The the job of the pastor is to preach the word, not their opinions, not what they think dreams or visions wise or whatever. And uh, one of the things I've noticed over the four years that we've been doing our program is that this program has become basically kind of like a a repository, a documentation, you know, a, a, a way of documenting the slide uh, of American evangelicalism into rank apostasy, uh, ridiculous liberalism, um, and just strange kinds of you know things that are being paraded around as if it's biblical teaching and it's not, and it's getting crazier, it's getting weirder. And so, uh, you know, the, this program at times could be funny to listen to, but funny like in a, whew, I can't believe I heard somebody say that. And then at times it's just downright depressing. It's, and, and so, you know, the idea, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. I'm not politically correct, and I'm not interested in couching what I say in in flowery terms that, that take your self-esteem into consideration. No, that's not what we do here. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith because I'm looking at my uh, my clock here and going, how am I going to get all this in? <clears throat> okay, so here's the deal. I have email that I need to get to. And uh, just so you know, I will not be getting to Pastor Charmley's emails today. I really want to, but I'm not going to be able to do that. He, he has written me. We ha- <laughs> remember the last uh, swarm of emails we got from Pastor Charmley had three, just boom, boom, boom in succession. Well, I've got another three emails from Pastor Charmley in succession uh, regarding Brian Brozozog. Um, and uh, anyway, so I'm going to have to save those until Monday. And the reason why is because I have some other emails that I want to get in today um, because – <clears throat> the, 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 well, you'll see what I'm saying. I, I, what I try to do, and this is, uh, you know, this little nuts and bolts here, is that every episode of Fighting for the Faith, unless I explicitly say this is not the case, every episode of Fighting for the Faith has some kind of a theme or some kind of a connecting overall theological topic that I that or apologetic topic that I am attempting to uh, center everything around, and so. Some the reason you know just so you know that uh, if you send me like uh, requests for sermon reviews, and you know and those of you uh, who whose sermons that you've requested that I review, you'll notice that sometimes there's like a a lag and a and a long latency from the time you sent in the email to the time that it actually got reviewed, and the reason being is because that even the sermons that I review here at Fighting for the Faith, there's particular themes. I'm trying to work on theologically. So I'm trying to teach good, broad uh, theological categories, almost inductively, if you would. Anyway, so today's emails that I picked kind of work with the theme that I was working from, and and Pastor Charmley's didn't work with the theme, but I think they will work with Monday's theme. So anyway, just so you know. But I don't always, in fact, as a general point, I don't normally tell you what the theme is, although from time to time I've done that. And then when I have a, a program where... The theme, I can't figure out a theme. <laughs> Those become the potpourri edition, editions of uh, Fighting for the Faith where it's just one weird thing after another after another. But if you go back through the episodes of Fighting for the Faith 
And uh, if, if you, you know, you could backwards engineer the themes that I'm working on. It's, it, I'm just telling you. <clears throat> anyway, so I, I got email that I got to do today. Um, okay, now I played audio earlier this week of Todd Bentley at uh, Revolution Church in uh, uh, northwest Arkansas. The pastor of that church, by the way, his name is Stan Tyra. And, um, oh, wow. Um, I've got vid- I, not a video. I got audio of Stan Tyra claiming that he received from Todd Bentley via the Holy Spirit. Get this, the spirit of Thor. No joke. I'm not making that up. I'm. We'll be playing that, uh, you know, shortly here um, <clears throat> on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So I got email. I got a Stan Tyra thing. I <clears throat> now I've got a Brian McLaren piece that I may or may not get to today. I just may not be able to, to, to pull it off today. That being the case, um, I, I've, got a, uh, I've got a video that uh, a listener posted a link to on my Facebook wall, and the name of it is Pursuing Mission. And, um, you, you know, just when you thought that that whole missional, incarnational, bizarre language, you know, had gone the way of the dodo bird and that, you know, it's it's fallen out of favor and vote. It's it's well, we got a video that was posted by a church kind of in the if you can call it a church in the greater Dallas uh, area. And um, I think based on what I'm seeing in this video is, is that <clears throat> the church itself kind of doubles as a community center slash art museum slash who knows what. And strange language we uh, uh, you're going to hear in that video that uh, is worth passing along. And then um, for hour number two, we're going to end with a good sermon uh, preached by uh, Dr. Vadi Bakum. Um, and the name of it is Adapting to the Culture, dot, 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 or not. Adapting to the Culture or not. And this is a fantastic, and I, and I mean that, fantastic resource that if you're ever in a conversation with somebody and you say, listen, why are you folks over at that church opening up your church service with, you know, ACDC's Hell's Bells or Miley Cyrus's The Climb or, or you know, Led Zeppelin or, you, you know, weird you know, secular cover songs? And it, what, they'll, you know, what they'll do is they'll say, oh, well, listen, just Paul on Mars Hill, he quoted a, a pagan poet, you know, and so, you know, we're, we're just trying to get their attention. Now, I recently did a sermon review where we, we went through all, you know, basically an attempt by one of these seeker-driven guys to give an apologetic for opening up a church service with secular music. But uh, <laughs> in this sermon, Vadi Bakum slowly, methodically, exegetically walks through the Acts 17 text where the Apostle Paul is you know, incensed by the idols, preaches the gospel in the synagogues and in the marketplace, and is eventually invited to Mars Hill. And he walks us through this. And after listening to this sermon, you're going to go, there's no way. If anybody, underst- if, you re- if anybody who would take the time to understand what this passage is teaching would then somehow say that it's okay to begin a church service with a secular, uh, with a secular cover song. So Vadi Bakum is just going, let's just put it this way, this is a nuclear weapon. It is, <laughs> it's just that good of exegetical work that when this is all said and done, this is, a, this is one of those videos you, you need to hunt it down on YouTube. Find it, 
and then put it somewhere as a saved bookmark or whatever. And if you find somebody who's making an argument like that, send them this video. Send them this video because at the end of it, they well, they they may not repent, but you you will just have taken away their favorite biblical argument. That's all I'm saying. It's this that good. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And like I said, we're going to begin with email. Okay, I got two emails that we're going to get to today. Actually, one is an email and one is a question left for me on my Facebook wall. I did answer it on my Facebook wall, but I want to read the answer uh, here on the air. Okay, Philip writes, and I don't know what city and state or even what country um, Philip is from. I mean, he could be from anywhere on the planet. Anyway, he, uh, Philip writes, he says, All right, I listened to the quantum prayer section of the podcast of the same name, on the way to work this morning, and I am now in total confusion. Maybe when I get to Bill Johnson's segment explaining how different visions can coexist and be accepted, I will get more clarity. I can also re-listen to Patricia King's explanation of the same issue, but I wanted to get your take. So, <clears throat> Stephen Furtick received a revelation from God, small g, honestly unsure if I should use the capital G, because that is who he thinks it came from or the little G because that is where it really came from. Anyway, uh, so he claims that he received a vision, a revelation from God and wrote the book, Sun Stand Still. Mark Batterson received revelation, wrote the Circle Maker book and points out how God is insulted when you pray prayers that are small. Now the XP Media people have received their revelation from God and teach that we should pray on the subatomic particle level. So I am so <laughs> I suppose my confusion is obvious. Um God never changes. He doesn't. And and what do we do? Do I pray audacious solar level prayers? Do I pray planetary sized circle prayers trying to keep the metaphors in the in the sciences or do I pray at the quantum level of quantum physics, string theory and all of that? Next question. <laughs> yeah, see I th- this by the way, Philip, this is a perfectly legitimate question every one of these people claims that they're teaching something that that they that has been revealed to them by god um either directly or some new insight into a biblical text or whatever and these are all supposed to be <clears throat> you know ideas that uh, have their origin in the mind of god so you ask a good question well see i would even add to this i mean maybe you need to learn how to circle uh, bosons while praying in the sun. You know, I don't know. You know, I, I, you just you think about these things. The, the 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 combinations are endless, and the question is, how is any of this a consistent teaching from God? And you know, how can you believe all of these things at once? Is kind of the point that you're making, especially with the idea that these well, they seem to contradict each other. If you if you know what I'm saying. So back to the email. He says. Okay, uh, so the next question, a- am I lacking faith to pray the latter if I don't even believe in some of the subatomic theories? Next question, 
is is a tangent uh, now at the smallest level isn't a circle made up of uh, geometrically of sort of linear segments between points of in space so my circle prayers are actually reducible to a collection of small linear prayers maybe they're not as big as they would seem since it isn't <laughs> linear <laughs> math smaller than logarithmic and exponential math by the way philip you're losing me now i'm you understand I'm a theologian, not a mathematician or a physicist, and I don't play one on television or the radio. Anyway, uh, so where are the teachings on such mathematical concepts and what could be accomplished praying exponentially? Maybe I don't – I did not see those books in the Christian fiction section of the uh, Watford Public Library. While I think I could go on making light of the idiocy, and that is too strong of a word, is that too strong of a word? No, it's not. Of these teachers on prayer, why don't we look at it from the biblical point of view? Exactly. Which is what we really should be. We pray to the Father in Jesus' name. We pray for the Father's will to be done. May I stop and ask how his own will could ever be small and insulting to God? It can't. We pray for our needs to be met, whether those are large or small. And most of all, we pray in faith, knowing that God can and will do all things, if it be his will and timing for that prayer. If it is not his will, then the answer will be no. Sorry, word of faith people. We don't get everything just because we think it is promised and have been doing all that we can to live right. Jesting at these teachers so-called, there is confusion. With God, there is no confusion, but he does promise in James to clarify any confusion we have if we simply ask of him. As you so often point out, we need to see and hear his response in light of what the scripture says, not what we want to read into it. Philip, great email, good points. All right, now switching gears to my Facebook wall, Stephen from uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, he uh, left a, a question for me on my Facebook wall. Here's what it said. Chris, serious question here, but from a Lutheran confessions point of view, how do we deal with unrepentance and admission to the altar? I'm in a virtually interminable argument with someone who insists that admission of practicing homosexuals is not only permissible under the confessions, but is the default expectation under Article 2, this would be Article 2 of the Augsburg Confession, and Article 13, I have held forth that those are not truly applicable and that um, Article 20 provides better guidance. He then accuses me of being reformed. I tell him he's being antinomian. He says, no, I believe homosexual conduct is sinful. I then ask him how he can square that view with admitting practicing gays to the altar, and I'm accused of denying the for you of Christ's forgiveness. This goes round and round and round. Okay, now I left an answer on my Facebook wall, and I want to just add a little bit of a note here, okay? Um, when somebody goes ad hominem on you when you bring up an argument, that is a bad sign. You need to call out the ad hominem argument, basically say, listen, knock off the ad hominem, but don't engage in it yourself. You say, you know, that being said, um, I think that it's important to point a couple of things out here. Okay. You're trying to argue finer points of theology that requires you to get out of a summary, which is what our confessions are. They're, they're normed by the scriptures, but they are summaries of, of doctrinal teaching within the scripture. You're going to have to get out of the summary and into the detailed pieces of scripture itself. 
So if you want to give an, a biblical argument at this point, you uh, not a biblical argument, but a confessional argument, you're going to need to resort to basically making an appeal to the formula of concord, epitome, the first part, the comprehensive summary, rule and norm according to which all doctrines should be judged and the errors which introduced should be explained and decided. So the idea here is to say, listen, okay, you know, it, for lack of a better way of putting it, the Augsburg Confession is a fine confession. But let me give you a, a metaphor here, okay? The Augsburg Confession is more akin to the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed than it is to a document that gives us what we should do, you know, you know, in specific instances regarding particular sins. Does that make sense? So, you know, there's different types of theology. So I think you're using the wrong tool for this type of uh, of an issue. So what you need to do, basically, if you're going to make a confessional argument, say, listen, the epitome of the formula Concord right opens up with basically saying, we believe, teach, and confess that the word of God is the only sole source and norm of doctrine, practice, and things like that, and, and, and how all things are to be judged. From there, you need to get into the biblical text, okay? And, it, and this will narrow things down extremely, because here you got somebody who really believes, who truly believes that it is the right thing to do to uh, permit a practicing, unrepentant homosexual to the Lord's table, okay? Which, by the way, okay, um, <clears throat> the idea here is, is that um, practicing unrepentant homosexuals are not permitted to the Lord's table any more than practicing unrepentant adulterers are due to the fact that they're unrepentant. If you're unrepentant, you don't want the forgiveness of your sins, and you don't believe you need Christ's forgiveness if you're unrepentant, right? Um, so the idea here is, is that let's, let's get into the biblical text, and we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what it says. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this to the Corinthian church. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And and you are arrogant. You ought not rather ought, ought you ra- not rather to mourn? Yeah, I messed up that sentence. You ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already announced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, uh, the leaven of malice, evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the idea is this. Okay. Scripture addresses this topic straight up. Okay. And you need to ask your friend straight up. Here's what you say. Scripture clearly says that homosexuality, homosexual practice, is sexual immorality. Therefore, in light of 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, how on earth can you commune an unrepentant, practicing homosexual, since Scripture forbids us to eat with such a one? Okay? That's the issue. He's, yes, he's ultimately run afoul of the confessions of the Lutheran Church, but more importantly, he's run afoul of the clear teaching of the Word of God, and as Lutherans, we understand the limitations of our confessions and what they're used for. And in this case, you know, the, the, the clear teaching of the Scripture, you know, it, it couldn't be clearer, okay? You can't commune a practicing, unrepentant homosexual on the grounds that the Scripture forbids us to eat with somebody. Instead, church discipline is what's in, in line here. In fact... If you want to argue the confessions again, argue Augustana uh, Article 12 regarding repentance. So the idea being this, we can't commune them because in order to commune them, that would mean we would have to eat with them. And why would we eat with somebody who was a practicing unrepentant homosexual when Scripture tells us we can't eat with and associate with one who calls himself a brother who is an unrepentant, practicing sexual immorality person. You understand what I'm saying. So the idea here is is that Scripture governs this very clearly. Now, I understand that, you know, this friend of yours, you know, from what you wrote in a a follow-up post, that, you know, he wants people who are homosexuals to come to church to hear the Word of God. And here's the idea. Anybody is welcome to in the congregation to hear the gospel. Anybody is welcome to hear the word of God, to come and hear God's word preached and to, you know, and to, you know, and to receive the word. But, you know, not everyone is welcome to the Lord's table. Okay. Not especially someone who is unrepentant, practicing homosexual or adulterer or, thief or you get what i'm saying so the idea here is is that yeah he goes he went ad hominem on you you know call him out on the ad hominem attack bring in the eighth commandment and say yeah that's uh you're breaking the eighth commandment there you need to repent and then drive home first corinthians 5 and basically say there's no way out of this this practice despite your good intentions is not in accord with scripture it's not in accord with sound biblical practice and is against our confessions as well and that's where you need to go okay moving along All right, um, are any of you all familiar with the Norse god Thor? Hmm. Yeah, in the Truth is uh, 
if truth is stranger than fiction category, I have audio of Stan Tyra, who is the pastor at Revolution Church of Northwest Arkansas. That's up in Bentonville. And he recently had Todd Bentley um, out to do some kind of a healing revival uh, service show, whatever. And at the healing revival service show, um, Todd Bentley apparently um, told Stan Tyra that he was receiving the spirit of Thor. Yeah, I'm, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. In fact, here's Stan Tyra to explain, and I'm going to add a little bit of context to the beginning of this because there's some crazy things in the beginning of this, right before this, that you need to hear as well. Here we go. Here's Stan Tyra of Revolution Church of Northwest Arkansas. Um, this is the opening portion of his sermon entitled Exposing a Religious Spirit. Here we go. This song is really a declaration. declaration about who we're becoming. I'm going to start a series today. I didn't know it was going to be a series, but I'm starting a series today called Exposing a Religious Spirit. And God was mighty among us last night and And that may seem strange for this house because most of you here have an incredible distaste for religious spirit. But last week after the Fresh Fire Conference, and there was a word declared over this house that that we were a bride in birthing and that dilation had already begun and that the Lord was anointing. Did, did you get an epidural? Anointing us with the oil so that the stretching could take place without even a mark. I, I'm so glad that you're going to be able to birth yourself to the next level without stretch marks. That's, that's really important. And that's begun. And the Lord's wanting to do a new work in this house. He's wanting to do a new work in the body. But he's wanting to do a new work in this house. And the only way that can happen is for us to become a very flexible, pliable skin that can hold new wine. So you have to be a flexible, pliable skin without stretch marks during your birthing process. Right. Yeah, This clearly this is from God the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> We think we're very flexible. But I got to tell you, church, we're not quite as flexible as we think we are. We're not flexible enough to hold a new wine. Right, and you better get flexible with, so that you don't get stretch marks while being birthed, you know, during the wine thing. Gary said it last night after the service when he and I were talking. We have become proud of our freedom. And anything you become proud of, God's opposed to. How is this a word from God? It's like nonsensical. It's one nonsensical sentence after another after another just strung together. 
kind of glory in our lack of religiousity. Anything we glory in other than Him, He's opposed to. Is it me, or does this guy have the same kind of delivery cadence as Bill Johnson? It's really weird to say that we're proud of not being proud. (laughs) Yeah, I'm proud to say that I'm the most humble man in the world. (sighs) Todd Bentley had a word for me last week. Now this is the part. Listen, Todd Bentley had a word for me last week. He gave that word kind of semi-publicly, and we shared it in the house because it's important to us as a church. And he said that he saw a spirit of Thor on me. Thor is a character that some of you are probably familiar with. Uh, no, actually, Thor is a false Nordic god. We'll give you some details here in a minute. I really wasn't that familiar with it until he told me. But Thor carries a hammer. And Todd said, Stan, when you teach, it'll be like a hammer. And it will break things that are so that new things may be formed. So he has the spirit of Thor and the hammer of Thor. That's a powerful word to me. And it said that every time, and then another person sent a word to follow up to that and said... And I just saw that every time you extended your hand in faith, the hammer would come to you. Wow. So, I mean, okay. By the way, this is absolutely frightening. Let me explain why. Okay. A couple of things here. If you do just some basic searches on on Thor, okay, here's what we learn. Okay. Thor was the god of thunder and the sky in Norse and early Germanic mythology. Though Odin held a higher rank, Thor seems to have been the best loved and most worshipped of the Norse deities. He belonged to the common people while Odin appealed to the learned and the noble classes. A patron of farmers, Thor was associated with weather and the crops, and although he could be fearsome, many myths portray him in a comic and affectionate way. Okay. Um, hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, some more some more details about uh, Thor. Thor, also known as the Thunderer, was considered the son of Fjorgen, Jord, and Odin by some, but all, among the uh, many tribes, Thor actually supplanted Odin as the favorite god. He is considered to be the protector of all Midgard, and he wields the mighty hammer. Uh, Modulnir, uh, Thor is strength personified. His battle chariot is drawn by two goats, and his hammer, Modulnir, uh, uh, causes the lightning that flashes across the sky. Of all the deities, Thor is the most barbarian of the lot. Rugged, powerful, lives by his own rules, although he is faithful to the rest of Aesir. The day Thursday, Thor's day, is sacred to him. Thor is married to Sif, a fertility goddess, and he also had a mistress, the giantess Jarnak Saxa, with uh, whom he had two sons, Magni and Modi, and a daughter, Thrud. Uh, that'd be a great name to name your girl, Thrud. Anyway, Thor is helpful by Theof- Theolfi and his servant and the messenger of the gods. Mm-hmm. He is a war- god of war, thunder, and strength. Thor destroyed the enemies of the gods with his magic hammer. 
It was he who chased away the frosts and called gentle winds and warm spring rains to release the earth from its bondage of ice and snow. He was also the god of the household and of the common people. He even married Sif, a peasant girl. The lightning flash, the lightning's flash was his mighty hammer. Mm-hmm. Hurled in battle with the, with the frost giants and the rolling thunder was the rumble of his fiery chariots. By the way, when you, uh, if you're familiar with Norse history, then you know that the early Christian missionaries, when they brought Christianity into um, you know Norway and uh, northern parts of uh, Germania, uh, the, uh, there was a lot of pushback from the followers and believers of Thor. Um, it was a it was a bona fide real fight, and that um, believers in Thor and Odin, one of the things that they practiced was human sacrifice. Okay. Now, this is all this is important because apparently Todd Bentley told Stan Tyra, and Stan Tyra thinks that this is some kind of a blessing from God, that Stan Tyra now has the spirit of Thor, okay? And he even has a hammer like Thor's, okay? This isn't a comic character. This is a false god, okay, whom people made sacrifices to in ancient days. The pagans... I mean, they, they were not warming up to Christianity, those who followed Thor. I mean, basically, there was a showdown between Thor and Jesus. Jesus ultimately won. And now, in Jesus' own church, you have somebody receiving the spirit of Thor. May I remind you uh, that Scripture tells us very clearly uh, what the spirit of Thor is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 14, I read, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat uh, the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Ah, okay. So let's go back in history. Back in the time of, you know, before Christianity took hold in in the Nordic regions of uh, Northern Europe, people offered sacrifices to Odin, and you know, I don't know if they actually offered them to Thor specifically, um, but they did offer sacrifices to Thor. He was one of the gods that they offered sacrifices to. Okay? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, who was the spirit, or what was the spirit behind Thor, the pagan deity? Answer, a demon. Yeah, that's what Paul says, okay? No, verse 20, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 20. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So it's pretty clear that uh, what Todd Bentley gave as a gift to Stan Tyra, the spirit of Thor, that was a demon. So Todd Bentley gave Stan Tyra a demon. We just take it literally. He gave him a demon. And Stan Tyra embraced the spirit of Thor 
a demon, and is now apparently prophesying and speaking in accordance with this word that he received, that he received the spirit of Thor, yet Scripture claims very clearly, teaches very clearly, that, well, pagan deities are demons. So, there you have it. Um, you just undeniable proof that strange things are happening in the church. Indeed, you have a pastor, a so-called Christian church, receiving a demonic spirit from Todd Bentley and thinking that he has received something as a gift from God the Holy Spirit. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's... Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm, I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. All right, we're back. Warning, if your pastor tells you that somebody has given him the spirit of Thor then you should know from your Bible that that's a demon and flee the building immediately. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute... A mere $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And occasionally there are perks to being a crew member. For instance, in the month of September, we will be sending our crew members a link for them to download our latest Pirate Christian Media ebook. And it's a, uh, it's a book written, small little book written by Martin Luther uh, about, well, preaching the Bible and biblical doctrines in church, not philosophy and things like that. But that's coming up in the month of September. Stay tuned for details. And again, if you're a crew member, when we release that, we'll be sending you the link. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And those of you who have been supporting us, again, let me thank you, thank you, thank you, because we cannot do what we do without your continued financial support. Moving along.
These are the sounds of the Postmodern Emergent Philharmonic Orchestra in their rendition of Strauss's, also Sprock Zarathustra. Tonight, the um, Emergent Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra is being conducted by Doug Paget. As you can tell, they are experiencing the ecstasy and joy of having been released from those pesky, limiting, modernist definitions of notes, and they are now being guided by the Holy Spirit and just letting the winds of the Spirit guide them into ecstatic musical performance. can say is bravo 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 all right <laughs> all right moving along okay so this video comes to us uh via a church in the greater dallas area in the name of it is deep elm deep elm maybe it's life in deep elm i and the name of the video is entitled pursuing mission and See if you can make heads or tails of this. Here we go. The video, by the way, opens in what looks like an art museum. Like, anyway, just listen. So every now and again, I'll be here for an event, an art gallery reception. Maybe it was a lounge show or one of the many kinds of events that we have at our building. And there's always someone kind of wandering around, checking out the building. I can see that same look in their eyes. Like, this place is bigger than why I'm here. What is this place? And I'll get in a conversation with them and maybe they've heard about various things that go on here. I heard you have like a yoga palace here. Or sometimes they'll say a yoga palace in a church. I heard you have a church here. So are you a church or are you a cultural center? We knew that it was not going to look like a typical church because this is not a typical neighborhood. Uh-huh. So because it's not a typical neighborhood, you can't have a typical church. Notice how the culture is dictating what the church is and does. When Jesus came from heaven, he emptied himself out of his divinity and he became a man because that's what that's what we would understand is another human being coming to tell us about God. Well, when we came in a de- Boy, that's a bad theology regarding the incarnation. Bellum, the idea is we are going to take on certain aspects of our community. We're going to take on the aspects that still carry the image of God because we believe that's going to give us the ability to communicate to people in terms that they understand. Uh-huh. Which parts of the culture still um, reflect the image of God? I'm curious which parts still do that. There's a major difference in between creating a, a community center out of the weakness of your neighborhood or creating it out of the strength. And we really saw those things as art, music, community, and commerce. We picked those four things and we said we believe we can incarnate God and show people God's love and his... <laughs> what? Hang on. You believe that you can incarnate God? Oh, my. Oh, my. Um... That's a new one by me. Goodness and his faithfulness and, and all those characteristics that 
that draw people into a relationship with God, we believe we can communicate those by incarnating Him in these four areas. Uh huh. Incarnating Him in the four areas of art and culture. And uh, okay, we really see um, the cultural center as the expression of our mission of our faith community. Um, so the cultural center is the expression of the mission of your faith community. How is it that your faith community has a different mission than any every other church in the world? How is it that your faith community supposedly has a unique mission all its own? Everything that we do uh, as a cultural center is out of the heart and the mission of our faith community. And so um, the different things that we do... In the- yeah, by the way, they're showing the outside of the building, and inside of their building they have the Super Yoga Palace. Cultural center, our initiatives, our service partnerships, our community partnerships. And there's a video of ladies doing yoga at this church. Are all bred out of um, the love of our faith community for our city. And they're the ones who get it done. They're the ones who make it happen. Um, We could not do what we do here without the volunteers that we have from the faith community. Most churches uh, exist to sort of reach the people that are already Christians around them. Because uh-huh, the job of the church, per se, or job of the pastor is to preach the word. And that goes along with the teaching aspect of the Great Commission. You remember, baptizing, teaching, all that I have commanded. Yeah, see, normally it's Christians who are the ones who want to hear all that God has commanded. And so the job of the pastor is to preach the word. And so it has a tendency to draw Christians to, you get what I'm saying there? It's not a fault, that's a good thing. They, they see the context of the Christian subculture of evangelicalism in America. Now, yes, we have a faith community. Yes, we are centered in the Bible. Uh, yes, we strive to worship God. But our goal, our mission, is very different. Well, so how did you come up with a different mission than the Great Commission? I'm curious. It is our neighborhood. And we hope that our hearts recognize that, like Jesus said... He came to serve and not to be served, and that we might live that out as well. Yeah, so this is church for the unchurched. A faith community for people who don't have faith. This is so wrong-headed, it's not even funny. And not only that, I mean, did you hear the bad theology there? We're here to incarnate God? Oh, boy. Anyway, so that's um, the, the, the video there. Apparently just picking up every little piece of cultural relevance and, and changing the entire look and feel of your church um, so that um, art you can focus on your mission of art, music, community, and commerce, whatever that means. I have no idea what any of those have to do with the Great Commission of going and making disciples, baptizing, teaching. Yeah, um, hmm, okay, so um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to pause. We're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to play a good sermon by Dr. Vadi Bakum entitled Adapting to the Culture, dot, 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 or not. Adapting to the Culture or not. Hopefully it will be the antidote for what you just heard, because... Um, Yeah, there's something really wrong, really, really wrong with uh, life at Deep Ellum and their ideas regarding church, by the way, which aren't unique to them. 
This is the basic underpinning of the entire seeker-driven movement itself. But if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here. We're not done yet. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. This is actually a chapel sermon preached by Dr. Vadi Bakam. I'll give you the details here in just a second. Boy. I'm not sure what was going on with that church, but life in deep ellum. Good night. Here we go. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes from uh, to to us via Dr. Vadi Bakum. 
And I think, based on the what I'm looking here, it looks like he was preaching this at a chapel sermon at the Masters uh, College. The name of the sermon, by the way, is Adapting to the Culture or Not. The idea here is, is that there are so many people who are buying into this ideology that we have to change the church to make it appealing to the culture vis-a-vis life in deep elm style, you know, have a yoga palace, um, uh, create a cultural center, make sure that the coffee that we sell doesn't involve uh, slave labor or is done at fair market prices or whatever. You you get what I'm saying? And all of this is basically a wrong-headed assumption that somehow we've got to be appealing to the culture so that we can they will then understand us and want to hear what we have to say. And when questioned about this, people will go automatically to Acts chapter 17, where Paul was on Mars Hill, you know, teaching to the uh, Areopagus there, and say that that's that's proof that we need to make ourselves... He quoted a a pagan poet. That proves that we've got to... uh, be appealing to the culture and change who we are. It, you know, com- be chameleonic in, in, in order to, you know, have the culture like us so that we can teach them and, and they would understand what we're having to say. Well, Dr. Vadi Bakum is going to take that one head on and wait till you hear what he does. Like I said, you're going to want this one queued up in your bookmarks for when people make that kind of an argument. So without any further ado, let me kill the music here. Here's Dr. Vadi Bakum and his sermon entitled Adapting to the Culture or Not. Good morning. I bring you greetings once again from the Republic of Texas. And it is good to be here on the, the West Coast once again. It is difficult to be here on the West Coast once again as we have a, uh, a, a new baby in our family. And actually, we are in the process of adopting uh, this baby, and he's in Atlanta. So right now, my wife is in a hotel room in Atlanta with a one-week-old waiting for the state of Georgia and the state of Texas to agree that she can leave from there. So um, I am looking forward to hightailing it out of here as quickly as I possibly can to be reunited with them. But if you... If you had any extra time to pray for anything, um, I would just ask that you would pray that um, that we could get our newest baby home as quickly as possible. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 17. As you look here in Acts chapter 17, I want us to think about something. I want us to think about the the question of culture and how we interact with and impact culture. There's there's much talk uh, today about how we do that, how we interact with culture, how we imp- impact culture, what what the most effective way is for us to impact culture. And there is a, there's, a, there's been a pendulum swing. And right now, there is this sense in which we believe that if we're going to impact culture, the way we do that is by becoming more like the culture, by becoming more palatable to the culture. 
We have to learn the culture's language, the culture's music. Uh, we, we have to learn the, the culture's styles. And not just learn them, but we have to adopt them. And not just adopt them, but we have to master them and mirror them so that we actually become what the culture is. Because it's only to the degree that we become what the culture is that we are able to impact the culture and transform the culture. That, that's the prevailing ideology, especially with younger generations. That's the, it's the prevailing ideology. And oftentimes, ironically, people will run to places like, First, uh, like, uh, like Acts chapter 17 in order to make that argument. There's also a sense in which we believe that what we have to do to impact culture is not just become like the culture, but that we have to go into the most influential areas in the culture Master those most influential areas in the culture. Be received and accepted in those most influential areas in the culture. So that then we can transform the culture. The classic example of this is the Christian musician who wants to go and do music so that through becoming the most popular music star of our day, he or she can then have a platform for the gospel. It's a classic bait and switch. I, I, I will be all that the world desires so that I can become incredibly popular in the world. And then once I am enthroned and the world is worshiping me, I will flip the script and tell them about Jesus. And of course, then the world will be saved. Is that what we see in the New Testament? Is that what we see from the Apostle Paul? I would argue that it is not, but it's not enough for me to just say that. Acts chapter 17, begin with me in verse 18. We find these words. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was filled with idols. Stop there. It's very important to understand why Paul was waiting for them at Athens. The reason that Paul was waiting for them at Athens is because he had been in Thessalonica and he had been in Berea and just like everywhere else that he had been, wherever Paul went, there was either a revival or a riot or both. And he had been run out of town, but this time when he was run out of town, the group sent him on ahead. Now the text doesn't say this, but it's hard not to imagine that after a while, this lightning rod who always brings about riots, people wanting to kill him and everyone with him, is told by his friends, man, why don't you go to Athens and we'll meet you. (laughs) Just wait for us, bro. If you can stay out of trouble for a few days, we'll be on. But here he is waiting for them at Athens. And his spirit is provoked within him as he sees the city full of idols. He looks at the city full of idols and he almost can't take it. It provokes him. He is, this is not just an anger. He's undone as he looks around at this city filled with idols. He worships the one true and living God. Not only is he a born-again, blood-washed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is a Jew and a Benjamite. 
And if he abhors anything, it is idolatry. Here he is looking at temples, statues, and monuments, and it sickens him. But what he is experiencing is not a sense of superiority over those in this culture who are worshiping idols. What he senses is an overwhelming mandate to proclaim the gospel to these who simply do not know and have not heard and are worshiping idols because they do not know and have not heard. And unfortunately, this is often the first departure between us and the apostle in this missionary endeavor. Because many of us, when we look at the culture's idols, we don't say, it sickens me. We say, how can I be one of those? How can I get that kind of attention? How can I get that kind of worship? How can I have that kind of juice? It doesn't bother us. We will often embrace these very idols as opposed to coming to a place where we simply cannot stand it and feel as though we have to do and say something. So what does he do? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. That's what he always did. He goes to the synagogue regularly and reasons with the Jews and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So on the one hand, he is going to the people of his own ethnicity, his own worldview, and he's communicating with them. By the way, he communicates with them very differently. If we had time, we could go back and look earlier in chapter 17 when he's in Thessalonica and how he reasons in the synagogue and the kind of preaching that he does there as opposed to the kind of preaching that he does here when he is in Athens. It is very different. So in the synagogue, he's going and he's reasoning with the Jews and basically showing them scripturally how Jesus is the Christ, how the Old Testament points to Jesus. He's showing them what Jesus showed to his apostles. He shows the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 that all of the scriptures point to him. In John chapter 5, Moses spoke of me. This was the message of Jesus that the Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. I am that Messiah to whom the Old Testament pointed. That's what he does in the synagogue. Then he's in the marketplace. He doesn't have the same common touchstone with the individuals in the marketplace, and it sounds quite differently. But is it completely different? Some go to this place and argue that what we need to do is, when we're in the culture, don't be too overtly Christian. Because after all, you don't want to turn off the culture. After all, if you are an artist or a writer or a musician or whatever, you don't want to go out and offend the culture immediately. So you got to sort of have a different kind of strategy. you got to be on the down low with your Christianity until you get to the right place. Again, is that what Paul does? Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? By the way, that's an insult. Spermologos in the Greek. What is this babbler, this idle babbler? The word picture that's painted in the Greek language is of one who picks up and spits out seeds. 
In other words, he hasn't really digested these thoughts. He's just picking up these ideas and spitting them out all over the place. What does this idle babbler have to say? It's an insult. They did not think Paul was cool. He is about to go on his day's Oprah Winfrey show. And it is not because he hid his Christianity and talked, looked, acted, and smelled like the culture. It is in spite of the fact that he refused to. He is about to go on the biggest stage of his day. And it is not because he compromised. It is not because he won people over by becoming like them. They call him an idle babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Wait, stop for a minute. Because here's the argument that people make from First Corinthians chapter from from uh, Acts chapter 17. They run to his message there at the Areopagus or the summary of his message at the Areopagus there on Mars Hill. And they say, see, basically what he did was he reached into their philosophy. He reached into their world. He quoted their philosophers and he did all of those things. But he didn't really go with all of the Christianese when the fact of the matter is the reason he got invited was because he was preaching what they thought were strange deities. They thought it was two different deities. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was preaching one male God and another female God, this Jesus and Anastasia, if you will, for the Greek word for, for, for resurrection. But the fact of the matter is he's preaching the resurrection in the marketplace. He's not truncating the gospel in order to win popularity. He is preaching Christ, him crucified and him resurrected in the marketplace. He is doing nothing to impress. He is doing nothing to embrace. Nothing whatsoever. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know more of this new teaching of excuse me, what this new teaching is that you are preaching, presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. There's this big break. Note that he did not get his big break because he looked like the world, acted like the world, smelled like the world, tasted like the world. He got his big break in spite of the fact that he did not. Now, let me hurry to say, Paul is not intentionally being offensive to those around him, nor am I arguing that that is what we are supposed to do. I stand here in front of you, for example, in in a suit and a tie, why? Because I love wearing suits and ties? Well, actually, yes, I do. Well, but no. <laughs> My point is, I'm here because like this, because of the respect that I have for this place and this culture here. But can I just give you a newsflash? None of you students wearing suits and ties. but I didn't come and try to dress like you. 
Is it because I don't like you? No. But it's because I don't believe that the message that I have come to bring requires for you to think or feel any certain way about me. But I do want you to know that I have respect for the place that I am, the opportunity and the responsibility that has been given to me. That's why I dress like this. It's not about being offensive to people. So what happens when he gets on the Oprah show? He's got his big break. Oprah's going to hold up his book. By the way, anybody who's ever written a book, and any Christian author who tells you, man, I I would never want Oprah to hold up my book. They're, They're not telling you the truth. I would go on Oprah's show and let her spit in my face if she'll hold up one of my books so that people will go and read what's in there because prayerfully they will encounter the gospel. How sad would it be, though, for a born-again, blood-washed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to hold in and hide the message of the gospel intentionally with a view toward getting to that place and getting to that opportunity so that they could achieve some kind of status and then later, having achieved that kind of status, try to spring on people this message that they've been hiding all along. First and foremost, that's dishonest. Secondly, it's faithless. Let me give you a little news flash. God is not running for God, people. There's a lot of people running for office right now. God ain't one of them. He was the only one around when the votes were cast, and there's never going to be a recount. He's God all by himself. Here's the second thing I know about God. God doesn't need me. Nor does he need you. In fact, by definition, God is completely and utterly self-sufficient. If God needed anything, by definition, he would not be God. God needs nothing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's going to prove it one day because we're going to die and the world's going to keep on spinning at the same rate it was before we left it. God can get you where you need to be by his own might and by his own power. He demonstrates that here in the life of the apostle Paul. Paul goes faithfully to the synagogue and he reasons with them from the scriptures. He goes faithfully to the marketplace and he preaches the gospel full on, no holds barred, preaching Christ and the resurrection to people, by the way, who philosophically are opposed to the idea of resurrection. They call him names. They mock him. And the result is God puts him on the biggest platform of his day. What does he do with it? Here's what's interesting. What he does with it is he preaches the gospel, but he preaches it in a way that's very unique because of his audience. 
You see, when he's talking to a Jewish audience, he has the same worldview. When he's talking to a non-Jewish audience, they don't share the same worldview. If you share the same worldview, you can sort of assume that they understand where you're going and where you're coming from. But if they don't share the same worldview, somehow you have got to bring them into your worldview. So how do you bring them into your worldview? Well, the overarching meta narrative of the Christian worldview is what? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's the overarching meta narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Somehow you have to communicate that to people. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. He observed the culture. And let me say that it's important that we do that. You need to observe the culture. I I am not arguing that you need to be an enemy of the culture or that you need to be ignorant of the culture. You must observe the culture. We just heard from some individuals who are going to Ecuador. They are learning things about Ecuador so that when they get there, they're not completely ignorant of the culture. So that when they have conversations with people, they understand who these individuals are. Paul observed his culture. We should observe our culture. We should be objective observers of culture. But there is a difference between being an objective observer of culture and being an indiscriminate consumer of culture. One of those is completely and utterly unacceptable. An indiscriminate consumer of culture says that it's right because it's popular in the culture. And the goal is to be popular in the culture. Therefore, we must adopt and adapt whatever it is that the culture celebrates. Paul is not making that argument. He is observing his culture with a view toward the proclamation of the gospel. And notice what he he says next. What therefore you worship as unknown, that I proclaim to you. I observed your culture and I saw some statues. I really like that one over there that was, you know, to an unknown God. By the way, that God that you say is unknown, let me introduce him to you. And then what does he do? Look at the next verse. The God who made the world and everything in it, by the way, that would be what? Come on. Creation. God made the world and everything in it. By the way, he's already going directly against the philosophies of the individuals who he talked to in the marketplace. God created the world. This is not the philosophy that they believe. It's not the philosophy that they receive. God created the world. Guess what? In our culture, people say, you are an ignorant, narrow-minded hick if you believe that God created the world. Guess what they said to him at the Areopagus? You are an ignorant, narrow-minded hick if you believe that God created the world. Guess what he started with? God created the world. The world. I'm on many a Christian, many a college campus. Some of them are Christian. Many of them are not. You know, my favorite thing to do when I'm on non-Christian college campuses, Genesis. I love it. Why? Because that's one of the traps that everybody wants to set. 
You know, are you a real intellectual or are you one of those sort of, you know, narrow-minded Bible people? Which is it? I don't even wait long for them to figure it out. Because some of y'all, I'll say something like, you know, some of y'all are sitting out there right now and I'm opening to the book of Genesis and we're having this conversation, having this discussion. There's a series of lectures. And right now, all you're wondering is this. Am I a real intellectual or am I one of these narrow-minded hicks who happens to have some credentials? You're sitting there going, is this one of those guys who believes that God created the world in seven days? And my answer to you is absolutely not. He did it in six. (laughs) And I think if you don't believe that, you're an idiot. You're not a real intellectual. And I'm going, it's for real? Did he just, he, he's not playing, y'all. <laughs> Paul says, God created the world. Notice, watch this. This God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He just exploded their philosophies. God made the world. Those people who had deistic ideas were kind of like, okay, I I can still go with that. He created the world. I mean, it's not like he's arguing that God is actually actively involved with the world. That's fine. So the first statement he Eliminate some, but he's holding on to the others who have more of a deistic view. And then he kind of goes, and for those of you who have a deistic view, who think that I'm just here to insult those guys, God didn't just create the world. He sustains the world. He doesn't live in temples made by hands. He's not served by human hands. Folks, can, can, can we just back up for a minute? I want you to realize what just happened. Paul says... I observed your culture, I observed your statues, and I observed your temples. Now what I want to say to you is this, it's all wrong. God doesn't live in those places you built. God's not served by human hands. He's not impressed with those statues that you built or those monuments that you built. Does this sound like somebody who showed up on Oprah trying to make her happy? He didn't compromise to get there. He doesn't compromise while he is there. Well, if, if, if we start with creation, now we've gone to fall. Why? Because now we've got sin. First, God made the world. Secondly, God's not worshipped the way you're worshipping him. So we've gone from creation to fall. Go to verse 28. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own prophets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You're sinful. You're not right with God. You haven't pleased God. You've sinned against God. In your attempt to honor him, even in your attempt to cover yourself in case there was a God out there who's not one of these gods that you worship, you make this statue to an unknown God so that if the God who you haven't named comes down among you, you can basically say, we didn't know you, but we made you one anyway. He's here, and he's not pleased. Look at redemption. Next verse. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. How do you get right with this God? Repent. Turn from your sin. Is it not amazing to you that people go here and argue for cultural compromise? People go to Acts chapter 17 and look at Paul, you know, here before the Areopagus and basically make an argument for look like the world, sound like the world, smell like the world, taste like the world, so that perchance you can get in there and get an opportunity with the world, then you can spring it on them. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent, to turn away from your sin, to turn away from the things that you have attempted to do in order to appease this God that you don't even know. Well, if we've got creation, fall, and redemption, next we ought to see consummation. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by, here it is again, raising him from the dead. Not only do we have consummation, but he throws that resurrection thing in there again. By the way, remember the resurrection thing is what made them call him names in the first place. There's his sermon. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's his message. What's the impact? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, please follow this. The comet comes after they hear about the resurrection of the dead. Before he gets to Mars Hill, they call him names mainly because he's preaching the resurrection of the dead. So before he gets this opportunity, what he knows is they don't like this idea of resurrection. Now he gets the opportunity and stands before the most influential influencers in the culture. 
And as he stands before the most influential influencers in the culture, he preaches a message that not only calls their worldview and their worship into question, but directly calls them sinners against the God who created the world. He calls them to turn from their sin and repent. And just for extra measure before he's finished, he throws back in there the one thing that made them insult him earlier on. It's working real hard to win friends and influence people. All that other stuff was a problem. But when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. You know what, you know what happens when you compromise and men finally get an opportunity to preach the gospel, having compromised and sinned against God. You know what, if you preach the gospel, even if you compromise and get an opportunity to eventually preach the gospel, some are gonna mock you. Some will hear you further and some will believe. You know what happens when you don't compromise and God opens an opportunity for you to preach the gospel? Some will mock you, some will listen to you further and some will believe. So why bother compromising in the first place? Compromising is not going to save anyone. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. The Jew first and also the Greek. What's the power of God unto salvation? And that is the ultimate question. Now we get to the heart of the issue. We think that the power of God unto salvation is popularity in the culture. We believe that what God really needs is for us to be powerful and popular so that God can use our name to get the gospel out. That's why we get so inflamed and enraptured when we find out that some popular or powerful person is a Christian. Did you hear that so-and-so was a Christian? No. Well, well, he is. Okay. Do you realize how popular and how powerful he is and how God can use his name and his platform? Stop right there. God already has a name that is above every name. The name at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If God already has the name that's above every name, what makes you think he needs yours? God's not in the business of borrowing people's names. He may give you a name, but God's not going to borrow your name. That thinking in and of itself belittles God. I'm going to strive to make a name for myself so that through my name and my platform, I can make much of God. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul uses the despised things, the things that are not, to shame those things that are. He uses the weak things of the world. You know what Christians ought to pray for? Oh God, make me a weak thing. 
Make me a weak thing. Had a conversation with a student. It was a, you know, this student was, you know, one of those high achieving Christian students and he wanted to impact the world. And this student was, you know, did great grades and all this sort of stuff. And he said, you know, I want to go to, I want to go to Harvard Law School. I said, why do you want to go to Harvard? Why in the world do you want to go there? They hate God there. Why do you want to go there? His response to me was, well, because almost all the Supreme Court justices in the modern era came from Harvard. So I want to go to Harvard because ultimately I want to serve on the Supreme Court. I said, so let me see if I get this straight. You're a Christian and you serve the one true and living God. And what you have found is a human path to the Supreme Court through a school that hates God. So you want to go to that place so that you can get to the Supreme Court and bring more glory to Harvard as it continues to flood the Supreme Court. How about you go someplace that's not Harvard and get on the Supreme Court so that God and not a school gets the glory? And he looked at me, as we'd say in the South, like a calf staring at a new gate. Dude, what's wrong with you? What are you thinking? Some of you face that because you come to the master's college. Why would you go to the master's college? Why don't you go to this place or that place or the other place? Because you know how much more prestige your degree would have if you got it from there. Go amongst the pagans. Let them certify you. And here's what's ironic about that. I'm I'm introduced at at these schools. And you know, if you have an individual who who studied places like Harvard and Oxford, where I studied, and they stand up there and they spout godless anti-Christian rhetoric, people look at them and go, dude, it's brilliant. You know, he went to Harvard. You know, he went to Oxford. But if you have someone with credentials from places like Harvard and Oxford and they stand up and go, God created the world in six days and it's not millions and billions and billions of years old. They don't say, dude's brilliant. He went to Oxford. They go, he's an idiot. I don't care where his credentials are from. Some will mock you. Some will hear you further. And some will believe. So what do we do with this? Let me be clear about what I'm saying to you. The goal of your life must not be a scheme to gain popularity so that you can use it for God. The goal of your life must be to know God better that you might serve him more faithfully in whatever arena he opens up for you. That's the goal of your life. Am I saying that you cannot go and be a lawyer on the, or, or, and a, or judge on the Supreme Court? Absolutely not. 
but you do not pursue a path that compromises your knowledge of God in order to get there. Am I saying that you cannot be a a popular musician who, who writes songs that people out there can appreciate? No, but I'm saying you do not compromise your path and your knowledge of God and your pursuit of the knowledge of God in order to get there. Am I saying that you can't write books that people will appreciate and that Oprah might hold up someday? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying to you is enough already of this belief that somehow you have to manipulate and satisfy the world in order to get into a position where God can use you. Because the fact of the matter is God's bigger than that. If you think you need the right credential, your God is not big enough. God uses the weak things of the world, the despised things of the world. Pursue excellence in everything that you do. And even as you pursue excellence, make this your prayer. God, make me a weak thing. The Apostle Paul was one of the most educated men of his day, of any day for that matter. He was more educated and better educated than just about anyone who was listening to him on this day. And he did not stand up and tout his education. He stood up and made much of God. And he did so without compromise. And my prayer for you is that you would do that. That you would take these formative years and dig deep roots. That you would know God and pursue God. And that wherever he places you, you would be faithful to him. That you would place your faith not in yourself, your abilities, your credentials, your popularity or anything else, but in the simple, plain, unadulterated, uncompromised gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our world is not aching for another superstar. We got too many of those. What our world desperately needs is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Make much of him. Make much of him. Would you pray with me? Father, our world continues to desperately seek someone to worship. Grant us grace that we might fight not to be that someone. But instead, that we might point clearly, consistently, and relentlessly to the only one who is worthy of our worship.
Make us weak things. Make us nothing. Make us despised. And in doing so, make your son known. Make us people who will gladly decrease that he might increase. We pray this in that name that is indeed above every name, in that name at which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, not to the glory of any man. We ask in that name. We serve in that name. We live for that name. And should it bring you glory, may we die in that name. Amen. Not much I can add to that. I think he made his points very well. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>